0: Well, there is a certain unnamed member of our family who turns seven years old later this week on Thursday, which is very hard to believe. She's keeping her head down. She has no idea. She's, oh, there she is. Okay. <laughs> Happy birthday, Callie, wherever you are. No, just kidding. Uh, as many of you know, um, six days after Kara Janice Colbertson was born, my mom, Janice Sue Colbertson died. Uh, and to say there was a strange mix and swing of emotions that week would be a gross understatement. Um, there are two things that bring people together almost like nothing else, and it's, it's birth and death. Um, Family and friends sitting around a living room, smiling and staring at this new life, this little baby, and just the wonder of it all. And then family and friends sitting around a living room, weeping and telling stories at, after a funeral of a loved one later that evening. You've had that experience, no doubt. Seven years ago, we found ourselves sitting together, surrounded by family and friends, doing both at the same time. We were reminiscing about mom's life and grieving her death. And we were introducing Kara to people who hadn't met her and rejoicing in her birth. Her name means joy in Greek. I I thought about that time in our lives as I was just working through this passage in John's Gospel and trying to just get a sense of what this day, this evening was like for Jesus' followers. They're gathered together on that first Easter Sunday evening. Only in this case, they're grieving the death and rejoicing in the new life of the same person. (laughs) And and it's not just any person, this is their Savior and the Lord, the one they've left everything to follow. When they said of Jesus, Lord, Jesus said, "Are you going to go away also? Where else are we going to go, Lord? You have words of eternal life. We've 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 left everything. The one in whom they placed all their hope, not only in this life, but in but for eternity. He he's died, and now he's he's alive. So we pick up the story in John twenty nineteen, where we left off last week. So we this is the scene. Ten of Jesus's disciples, Thomas's. AWOL, but 10 of his closest followers are there. There are several other followers, according to Luke, that are gathered together on this Easter, Easter Sunday evening. And, and, and there seems to just be, as you read through this text and the parallel passages, this, this pronounced and lingering sense of shock in that room. He's trying to make sense the swirl of emotions after they 've watched Jesus be violently murdered and hurriedly thrown, his body buried in a, in a grave, and, and then on Sunday morning, his body is missing. And then there are these rumors that start circulating that Jesus is alive and some women have actually encountered Him and spoken with Him and seen Him face to face. So so there's grief and there's joy and there's fear and there's hope just all stirred up together. That's the scene in this room that you've got to, as we saw in the video, we've got to see it, we've got to feel it, we've got to believe it, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to know what's going on here and so when we when we catch up with his disciples here it's like his followers are just kind of hanging on by their fingernails at this point they're just just there they're they're in this fragile state and and they've come together what people do in times like this they they're, they're drawn close to one another they're huddled together they're trembling they're waiting just to see what's going to happen next they don't know they don't know what all this means I know we, we know what's coming, and we know the rest of the story, but put yourself in the shoes of His followers here for a moment. By this time, everyone's heard the testimonies of Mary Magdalene and the other women at the tomb, and, 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 and yet they're still not sure what to make of all this. They're hopeful on one hand, but mostly they're, as is evident, they're scared for their lives. So they locked themselves in this room in fear and they wait Then all of a sudden, the risen Jesus shows up in their midst. And what does He say to them? Shalom ha. Peace be with you. Three times he says in this passage, it says two different Sunday evenings, but three times. Shalom, we, even if you know any Hebrew, that's the word you probably know. And, and even to today, this is a normal, customary greeting, and, and it was in that day. But Jesus means more when he says this, and hey, how's it going? It's not, that's not it. Just a few nights before, the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus is gathered together in that second story room with his closest followers. And among the many things he told them on that Thursday night, just a few nights before he said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So he promises peace in the context of his imminent death. That's what he's stressing On this night with his disciples. Now Jesus makes good on that promise to them. And he comes and he presents himself alive. And he says. Remember that peace. Peace. Be with you. Peace. Reconciliation between holy God and sinful man. That Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. That objective peace with God. That's part of it. But growing from that objective peace, there is that subjective feeling of rest in our hearts. And don't think that he doesn't have both in mind here. That was the context in the upper room. It's that, that inner calmness that comes from knowing that Christ died, atoned for sin, and has conquered death, and now my heart can be at rest. That kind of peace, brothers and sisters, is a resurrection gift from God to you and me. We, you and I don't have to live fearful, frenzied uh, lives that are just in this constant turmoil. That is not what, how we're called to live. We can know this peace that our Lord speaks of here. And notice this peace is connected with Jesus being presented alive and showing His wounds. So he, He shows up and He tells them, Peace be with you. Then verse 20, He showed them His hands and His side. He does the same thing with Thomas a few verses later. And one of the reasons he shows them his hands of Sidus to show that it's really him. It's an, it's, it's, it marks his identity. He's not a ghost. He's not an imposter. It's really him. But, but these wounds, there's more than that. These wounds are showing the high price that Jesus paid for our peace. They're connected. And so Jesus, here's the big idea of this passage. Jesus was both pierced and presented alive for our peace see that today you and i can have peace in this trouble-filled world because jesus died and rose again i'm not talking about just some kind of calm indifference or detachment from the realities and the painful realities of our world we just kind of just kind of you know well pray ptl and just kind of smile that's not what i'm talking about not some denial of pain or problems or real threats in our lives we're not Buddhists but this peace that Jesus promised and provided and he said later in that upper room discourse in John 16:33 i have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you have tribulation but take heart i have overcome the world and here He is, the wounds, and He's live to say, peace be with you. He speaks to us today, the same word. And so as we see, what we're going to see as we walk through this passage is what the, this resurrection of peace of Jesus affords to us, what, what it does for us. There's three things, and I'll state them, and I'll state them again in a moment, so don't feel like you've got to write all this down now. First thing, God's peace turns warriors into worshipers. Secondly, God's peace turns mopers into missionaries. And thirdly, God's peace turns balkers into believers. First, God's resurrection peace turns warriors into worshipers. Verses nineteen and twenty. The disciples, as we said, are they're terrified. The, the one they've been glued to, stuck to for three years now, has been violently, uh, and unjust, has been unjustly arrested, has been beaten, has been, has been murdered by the Jewish authorities. Now, even if Jesus is, in fact, alive, as these women say, <clears throat> they know that this can't be good for them. They're marked men. So, so what's going to happen now? They're, they're, just, they're just waiting in that room for the secret police to bust the door down that's the scene verse 19 on that on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the jews those jewish authorities jesus came and stood among them and he said to them peace be with you when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad when they saw the lord so John says that when Jesus shows up, they're glad, and they were glad. That's perfectly true. Now Luke gives us a little more information, and he says that before they were glad when Jesus appeared, they, they were freaked out <laughs> by the fact that Jesus appeared before them. Not just scared of the Jewish authorities, as John says, but also scared of the sudden appearance of Christ. And so that, that Luke twenty four twenty seven, they were the text says startled and frightened. You just put yourself in their shoes. Someone you know has, been, has died is now alive in front of you. And this person that's presented alive in front of you is the one that, that you abandoned at his darkest hour. Now he shows up. I think fear is the natural response in that setting. But this paralyzing fear is, is quickly transformed into joy and gladness. These worrying disciples are changed into worshiping disciples. And, and how is that? how does that change take place? What does Jesus do? First thing, Jesus came to them. He came to them. He came and stood among them, the text says. In Jesus' resurrection body, He was able to enter the room, even though the doors were locked. He wasn't hiding in... I know there are some ridiculous commentaries that say, Oh, He was already in there. He was just hiding behind a curtain, or under the table, or something, or... Some said, he, well, maybe he was lowered through the roof. He lowered himself through the roof. Give me a break. Somehow he, he, he comes to them, physically comes to them, presumably through the walls or something like that. Now he, So, it's, so he, he has this resurrected body, which is a real physical solid body. They touched him. He ate fish and, and digested it but, it. but it's a different kind of body. It, it, it's not limited by our so-called laws of nature. So something's changed. His body is physical. He's not a phantom or a ghost. He's, he's fully, it's a fully human body. He doesn't glow or emit some kind of strange aura or something like that. It, it, there was nothing that looked out of the ordinary. He, he was not ordinary, but it didn't appear that way. But it was also, I don't know what to say other than spiritual. There, there's something different. Two times in this text he enters a place without passing through a door. So, so clearly something's changed with this resurrection body. And, and Christ's resurrection body is the pattern for our resurrection bodies. He's the first fruits of us. And, and so there, there's a lot we don't know. But we at least get some idea of what it may be like when, when we're presented with resurrection bodies on that last day. But, but what I want you to see is Jesus doesn't... The text just doesn't say he appears or that he is now omnipresent and everywhere at once. Like he is, the, he is in the room with them uh, in the same way and at the same time that he is outside of the house. That's not it. It's not his omnipresence isn't what he's talking about. The text says he came to them and stood among them. That is exactly what these fearful disciples needed. The fact that Christ came to them changed everything for them. And and John puts a a lot of emphasis on the timing. You notice in verse 19 that it's that evening, that that evening that he rose from the dead, the first day of the week, Sunday evening. So this first day of the week is transformed because Christ rose from the dead on that day. From that day on, Sunday gatherings became the new normal for Jesus' followers. The, the, his resurrection changed everything, even the day his disciples met. Sundays were days for meeting with Jesus and remembering his death and resurrection right away. Sundays were days for fears to melt and for joy to abound that 's what Sundays became right from the beginning and I would just say to you, brothers and sisters, as, as passing the Sundays are still fear. Fear-transforming days for Christians. We come together each week. We drag in this mix of fears and worries and hopes and joys and sorrows into this place and, and into this assembly. And we meet with Jesus. And we remember His death and His resurrection together. Preaching and singing and praying and reading scripture and testifying and eating and drinking and giving and all that we do in in, in, on our, in our Lord's day worship and our worries are washed away and and they're replaced by rejoicing. That's what happens when when we gather. It's what should happen. It's not that Jesus isn't with us six the other six days of the week. That's not it at all. But God's design is for the church to gather on the first day of the week to remember jesus died but he lives it starts here and that's continued throughout the history of the church and so when we're struggling with our worries and our doubts and our and our despair when we're dealing with discouragement uh sometimes our tendency is to just want to be alone and to go away somewhere and to head up to the mountains for the weekend and we don't have to be present in the assembly on sunday because that that makes us uncomfortable I, we, 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 we want to work our way out of worry. We want to distract our way out of worry. But that's the wrong response. That's what Thomas does. He's not there. His despair, his doubt, it drives him to isolation. It, he doesn't gather with the other disciples. And he, and he, he suffers an agony unnecessarily longer because of it. What we need to do is worship our way out of Worry. And this is where we come and we gather on the Lord's day. Remember, Christ died and rose. And He comes to us in, 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 the, in the assembly. Alright, so Jesus came to them to help change them from warriors to worshipers, And secondly, Jesus spoke to them. He spoke to them. He spoke with His words. He spoke with His wounds. He comes and He tells them, You, you dirty, rotten, no good, backstabbing, worthless cowards. Is that what your text says? <laughs> no, he could have rebuked them. He could have, he could have just blistered them with, with harsh words. But instead, he gently speaks to them and he reassures them. And he says, peace, peace be with you. That would be the last thing they would have expected him to say. And his words are, as I said, connected with his wound, this, to his wounds, this peace he speaks about, the, about his back by showing the, the price he paid to secure it. Then their fears melt, and they're glad now in the presence of their Lord. Jesus told them in the upper room again, John 16:22, "So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again." And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. That's what we're seeing fulfilled right here in this encounter. Jesus came to them. They saw Him again. They, he spoke to them. And their fear and their sorrow is overwhelmed now by joy. Unstoppable joy. Luke says that after Jesus came and spoke to them, they, uh, quote, disbelieved for joy. They, they, they had so much joy they couldn't even believe it. In Jesus. I just say. Brothers and sisters. Is your life. Gripped by fear. Are are you consumed with worries. And maybe. Maybe it's been. It's been. You've been consumed with anxiety. And worry for so long. You don't even recognize it anymore. You just think that's normal. It's just constant. turmoil. Lack of peace. Is there a. Is there a pronounced absence of gladness in your heart life. I don't mean that Christians don't get sad and discouraged and but, I, but I, I'm just saying the, res, the risen Jesus comes and offers to you this resurrection gift of peace He comes and He speaks to us he, he, he speaks to us through His words through His wounds the writer of Hebrews is writing to suffering and fearful Christians who are being persecuted and under all kinds of pressure and he encourages them over and over through this letter to, to encourages them by pointing to the sufficiency of Jesus and His atoning work. And in Hebrews twelve twenty four, he says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The atoning blood of the crucified Jesus and, and risen Jesus that was sufficient to make peace with God for whoever trusts in Him. It still speaks to us today does it speaks to us now listen to the voice of jesus blood crying out to you today and and let it quiet your anxious heart and let it inflame your worship and your joy in him so that's the first way that resurrection peace of christ changes us it turns warriors into worshipers secondly God's resurrection peace turns mopers into missionaries. He doesn't just tell his disciples to stay huddled together and just kind of hang on and and grit your teeth until I come back for you. That's not what he says. He speaks peace to them and then he flings them out on mission. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, remember them is not just the ten disciples, the eleven minus Thomas, it's it's According to Luke 24, there are other disciples, the guys from Emmaus, there are women, there are others that are present. And so, whatever he's about to say to, these, to, to those that are remaining in that room, it's for all of Jesus' followers. He says, peace be with you, again, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, we've heard a version of those words before. This isn't the first time Jesus has talked about this mission here, it's in a charge to his followers. I'm sending you, before we heard it, in prayer to the Father. In the upper room, when Jesus prayed, in, in uh, John 17, verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So, so he's sending them out. There's this mission. What, what does the risen Jesus say about this mission? First thing, this mission is God's. It's our God's mission. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's not our mission, it's God's. It begins and ends with Him. We're we're not called to take over a task from God that He failed to complete or just chooses not to complete. No, we're joining God in what He's already doing. One of the clearest statements of this is in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, Paul writes much later to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's God's, it's God's mission. He's involved. We're not we're not doing something on our own for him we are involved with him in his reconciling work as his ambassadors and notice it's a trinitarian endeavor father son spirit involved the father sent the son the son sends us in the power of the holy spirit as we'll see in verse 22 so what what great encouragement to us brothers and sisters isn't it i mean that that to know that as we as we use and expend our lives and leverage our lives for God's mission, its its success is not dependent upon us, but on God who never will fail. That helps. Second thing about this mission is to go is our task. I am sending you, Jesus says. We We are marked by Christ as sent people. We're not to be stagnant. We're not... We're not to retreat. We're not to hole up in a corner. We are sent by Christ into the world by Jesus. Now, it's kind of a curious statement when you think about it. We're sent into a world that we already live in. I'm sending you into this world. But we who are in Christ are not, as Scripture says, of this world. We're strangers. We're pilgrims. We're we're, we're foreigners. We're, we're citizens of heaven. And this is not where our passport is from. We're, we're here. And, 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 and so we've been sent into this world to be engaged in this mission. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. We have the same mission. We have the same commissioning authority. We have the same message. We have the same recipients of that message as Jesus. Jesus. So Christ sent into this lost and broken world to redeem and transform them. We've been sent just like that into this world with the word of the gospel to open blind eyes, to heal broken souls, to set people free from bondage. Just as the Father sent Christ, so we've been sent by Christ into this world. But this is what I want you to see. Your life is defined by that calling that is what really matters about you that's that's who you are you're a sent person you're sent by god you're not first an employee or an employer or you're not first a parent or a child or a student or a retiree you are a sent one your identity is tied to this mission and that affects how you how you function as an employee or as an a parent or as a student or how you live as a as a retiree. And everything about you must be shaped by this mandate. doesn't mean that we all are, are called to sell everything and go over, cross-culturally serve overseas. But I, I mean, wherever you live, wherever the Lord has stationed you, what defines your life is, I am sent on a mission. And So it, it, again, it affects how we do even the most mundane things of life. We do it with the, the lens of what really matters is this commission of Christ. I'm sent one. And how, how, do, we, how do we go on? How do we, how do we engage in this? How are we possibly going to, to, to do this? Well, the Spirit next is our enablement. As we engage in this mission, the Spirit is our enablement. Verse 22, And when He said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So, in verse 21, with that commission, He completely reorients their lives. So I'm not just a fisherman who happens to do some discipleship on the side. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, no, I am now a sent one, and that changes everything. Even if I'm a fisherman, I'm a, I'm a different kind of fisherman now. So he completely ruins their lives, and they're no doubt staggered by that. But what Jesus says is, you're not alone. I will give you what you need. No, I will give you who you need, the person of the Holy Spirit. And so now we get to verse 22, and I know you read that and you think that's he breathes on them and says receive the Spirit, and we we have lots of questions. There's a lot of debate about verse 22 and how it should be understood, because doesn't Jesus later tell the disciples, "Hey, you wait here in Jerusalem until until the Spirit comes upon you at Pentecost"? And so yes, he does say that. But here's what I and other much smarter people that uh, we're like-minded with think is going on here. I think this giving of the Spirit is connected to this statement of the mission. They're commissioning here. Just like the Spirit came upon Jesus at the beginning of His ministry when He was baptized by John, so the breathing of the Spirit here marks the beginning of ministry for His disciples. There are other aspects of the Spirit's ministry that will follow at Pentecost, but there seems to be this kind of at least partial interim giving of the Spirit now. Whatever they need to go out as those sent by Christ, they they will have in the Holy Spirit. And you think about, for the next 39 days now, they're going to be going to be taught and prepared and they're going to need the spirit's help to to take all of that in and to, to, to connect all the dots and so the spirit will be helping them and working them and enabling them and giving them understanding and, and empowering them for whatever they need and so that's the best i can understand and explain and i'm not saying there aren't better explanations out there by any means uh, but but the important thing i want you to see is jesus provided the disciples for whatever with whatever they needed for the task that they were given And He does that for us. They needed comfort, help, power, understanding. And the Spirit was given to provide for those needs. And I would say, Jesus always gives to you and me what we need to obey Him. If we disobey, it's not because God didn't give us the resources to obey. If we we sin, it's not because God didn't provide a way of escape for us out of that temptation. If we worry, it's not because God hasn't provided clear and precious promises to us if we if we mope around instead of moving out on mission then it's it's not because we don't have the spirit to enable and empower us we, whatever whatever work we're given to do Christ gives us the enabling to do it and the most important that he gives us is holy spirit and certainly now on this side of pentecost we don't even have to wonder we have the spirit the promised spirit that Jesus said would come and then lastly in terms of this mission forgiveness is our message Verse 23, Jesus commissions him, gives him his spirit, and he says, if you forgive the sins of any, you are, they are forgiven them. If, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, like verse 22, there's no small amount of ink that's been spilled trying to understand and explain what's going on in verse 23. You can imagine what some have done to this. with this. There are some, particularly uh, from a Roman Catholic, but not exclusively, backgrounds who who use this verse to support their understanding that priests are given the authority by God to forgive sins and to withhold forgiveness of sins. And so this is used to support the confessional booth. That's that's not... I don't think that you can read that into... that Jesus is instituting the confessional booth in this passage. That's not his point. He isn't saying that we or anybody has the authority to forgive people. That is God's alone. That's very clear in other parts of Scripture. And we can... And interpret this passage in light of those much plainer statements but we all all believers are empowered to declare god's forgiveness of sin when people believe in jesus i think that's his point if any man woman child becomes conscious of their sin confesses that to him as it acknowledges their need for jesus and believes in him we have the authority to say to them your sins are forgiven you by god if anyone refuses to believe in Jesus, I think we have the authority to say your sins are not forgiven you by God. That's the point. But what, what Jesus is really saying is that this offer of forgiveness of sins, that's the message that we herald. And and I can say that with, with confidence because in Luke 24, which is this parallel passage, the same uh, post-resurrection scene that we're looking at here in John 20, he says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That's our message. So you look through the book of Acts and it's, it's this forgiveness of sins is the, is the prominent feature of apostolic preaching. And so it should be with us. We preach forgiveness of sin in, in Christ to the world. That's our message, that's our commission. And notice again that this charge is given in the context of another word of peace. Peace peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. The disciples were already frightened. Now he sets them up for this mission which is huge, and the task is overwhelming. And I would just say, if you and I, if we don't tremble a little bit at this charge, it probably means we don't really get it. If we think, I got that. Yeah, I'm doing that. No problem. No, we should, we should, there's a right kind of intrepidation at this, if we really understand that our lives are to be characterized as, that we are sent people by Jesus himself, to be engaged in the mission that God is on. That should cause us to pause. But Jesus, even in that moment, He reassures us with His peace as He sends us out. So this resurrection peace, it turns us who would be inclined to mope around and complain about how bad things are and reading the headlines and just kind of hole up in our house and behind our compound and just kind of hang on until Jesus comes back and makes everything right. He says, no, I've given you peace because I've suffered and I'm alive. And now, go! Go out! Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm not sending you out on your own. No, the Spirit is going to help you. I've given you everything you need to preach forgiveness of sins to the world. And it it will be effective because this this is what we're doing. The Father, Son, and Spirit are engaged in this. It will not fail. The church will be built. My sheep will hear my voice. Third, how does God's resurrection peace change us? It turns balkers into believers. We balk. This is what Thomas does. He doubts. He hesitates. You can trace, as we work, we've seen this through as we worked our way through John's Gospel, you can trace the development of unbelief through Jesus enemies and it and unbelief seems to grow as we get closer and closer to the climax but we can also interestingly uh, th- thinking about this week you can trace the development of doubt among Jesus's followers among believers through John's gospel and and that climax is here so we have poor Thomas i mean he gets a nickname that just sticks, and we—I mean, it's not in Scripture—but we all know Thomas, Doubting Thomas. That's all we know him for. And he does doubt, but he also does believe, and and he, his doubts, what we see, they're dwarfed when he encounters the risen Jesus. And and it's, and it's not like the other disciples didn't have their doubts until they saw Jesus, but John is is highlighting here, and and as we'll see in a moment, he's really bringing his whole book here to a climax in this confession. Of Thomas. Just a, couple thing about, a few things about doubters. Doubters drown in the ocean of isolation. Doubters drown in the ocean of isolation. Now Thomas verse 24. One of the twelve called the twin. Was not with them when Jesus came. Where is Thomas? Why, why is he not with the others? He should have been there. He, and, and by not being there. He misses out on the joy. Of seeing the risen Jesus. And hearing him speak words of peace. And reassurance that would have quieted his troubled heart. But instead, he goes this week, this tortuous week. He evidently lacks peace. He's nervous. He's restless. He's skeptical. He would have been helped by being with the others on that first Easter Sunday evening, but he apparently just left town. and He, he skipped church, we would say. <laughs> I'm not trying to be trite. But I, I've already made application of this. But don't do that when you despair. Or when you doubt, um, when, when doubts creep in, move towards the Lord, towards His people, towards the means that He uses to strengthen our faith. Second thing about doubters is they can be very dogmatic. Verse 25, so the other disciples told Him. Now, the tense of that uh, Greek verb there that they told Him, it's, it, it just means that they told Him repeatedly, continually, over and over again. The other ten told him, the women told him, other disciples, they kept telling him again and again and again, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He's dug in in his doubt. He adamantly rejects the testimony of his brothers and sisters in the Lord who kept on telling him over and over again, No, he lives, Thomas. He lives. We we saw him. We we heard him. He spoke to us. We've seen him face to face. We touched him. We felt him. We saw him. But Thomas disregards all of that and refuses to believe until he personally examines the evidence. He's saying, in effect, the evidence has to be what I decide it is what I decide it has to be, or I will not believe. So he's willing to believe on certain conditions, but he himself is the one who gets to set those conditions. And for him, hearing testimony is not enough. He's got he's to see, he's got to feel. Now the rest of the story, we move down to verse 26, and the thing we see about doubters here is that doubters do investigate. Doubters investigate. Verse 26, eight days later, this would be a week later, he's counting both Sundays, this is how time was typically accounted. So they're gathered together on the next Sunday evening. And and again, Jesus is impressing that right away the disciples are gathered with Jesus on this day because that's the day Christ arose. But his disciples were inside again and this time Thomas was with them. He goes with them. He doesn't stay away. He doesn't run away. He doesn't walk away from Christ. He goes, investigates and It's something, I think we maybe confuse doubt with unbelief. There's something you need to understand about doubt and doubts. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's not the absence of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. And so so doubt says, I want to believe, but I can't. Unbelief says, I don't want to believe and I won't. So you, they're very different. But, but for, for, for doubt to become an issue in our lives, it, there first has to be some measure of faith uh, present. So just an illustration of this, Peter, when he, when he walked on water to Jesus, and so he gets out there and, and, and he's, he stumbles in doubt. He doubts Jesus' power, and he takes his eyes off of Christ and sees the wind and the waves. And, but for, for that to even become an issue, he had to get out of the boat, <laughs> There has to be faith. And I think that's what you see in Thomas. Thomas left everything to follow Jesus. And, and, he, and he doesn't, when they bear testimony, he doesn't say, I don't believe. No, okay, I'll go see. I'll see, there's, there's some faith. He hasn't rejected Jesus. He's not an unbeliever who doesn't want to believe in the crucified and risen Jesus. He wants to believe. And he, he does believe in the sense that he goes to see for himself. Next thing about doubters is doubters can change. They do change all the time. Although the doors were locked, verse 26, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus doesn't scold Thomas. He doesn't punish him for his doubts. Instead, he actually graciously accommodates his conditions. For every demand that Thomas made, Christ gives a command. I mean, it's almost word for word. Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, Jesus says, see my hands. Unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails, put your finger here. Unless I place my hand into his side, place it in my side. I will never believe, Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. There's, There's no evidence... In the text, I mean, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but there's nothing that's said that he even bothered putting his finger anywhere near Jesus' body. He having come face to face with Jesus doubting Thomas, his doubts disappear. He doubts no more. His heart is instantly flooded with this Full reality of who the risen Jesus is. And without hesitation, he makes this grand climactic confession for the whole Gospel of John. This is where everything from John 1 1 has been leading to. It's a statement from the skeptic My Lord and my God. That's all that John has been writing for 20 chapters now. He's been wanting to get us to this place. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You're going to see in a moment, I've written these things to you that you might uh, th- that believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why I've written everything before these words. And this is the highlight of it all this great confession. Not just that Jesus is alive, but He's God, God in the flesh. My Lord and my God. And that, but, but then Jesus says one other thing. And, and this is in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So he's not saying there's anything defective in Thomas's faith. It's genuine faith. But immediately Jesus looks beyond the people in that room who are seeing Him face to face and He looks down through the halls of history for all, through all centuries and says, Thomas, you believe because you saw Me. But a whole host of people will never see what you, what you were able to see. And, 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 and they'll believe because they hear solid eyewitness accounts. Blessed are those who believe because of this auditory This auditory faith, they don't see and yet they still believe. Faith which results from seeing is good, but faith which results from hearing is better. Believers today are not deprived by not physically seeing Jesus. We are uniquely blessed, Jesus says. And this is how it generally works for ninety nine point nine 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 percent of Christians who have ever believed. It's come in this way. We hear, we hear maybe by reading the written word, but most often we hear as the word of the gospel is, is spoken by someone who's been transformed by that gospel. You have the eyewitness testimony of Scripture wrapped up in a person whose life has been transformed by the risen Jesus. And that is a powerful thing. And Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see and yet still believe. And as I said, in a sense, John's done now. He's finished. This is what he set out to write. In, and, and it all ends, in a sense, in verse 29. He, he then is going to state his purpose for writing in verses 30 to 31. I'm not meaning that this is not written by John or inspired by the Spirit. But I'm just saying the bulk of the gospel account is, is done. He's going to give an epilogue in chapter 21, a brief epilogue. But he sums it up. This is why everything I've written... Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. I mean, there was a lot that was left on the cutting room floor for John. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in His name. John did not write his gospel account to explain who Jesus was. He didn't write to defend the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead the greatest sign that he records in his gospel account that wasn't his ultimate aim I'm saying it doesn't he doesn't help in that but his burden in writing was that we might know and have resurrection life in his name that's what John is passionate about. He wants us to see Jesus, to really see Him and and seeing Him, believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing Him, have life in His name. That's the end that John is after. Life in His name. See, believe, live. As we sang earlier, the the resurrected King is still resurrecting me. He's changing me. His resurrection peace continues to change us, to turn us from being warriors and into and, and, and worshipers and mopers and to missionaries and, and, and balkers into and wholehearted believers. We all need more of this abundant resurrection life that Jesus gives to us. We need to be less content with just kind of half-hearted existence and getting by. We need abundant lives that are filled with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. That's what our Lord wants. For us today, let's pray, Father, would you help us to god may I pray that the 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 spotlight of your holy spirit would shine in our hearts today, God, and to whatever extent we we're doubting we're it is it is right for us to admit those to you God you know if if we're if we have doubts in our hearts. You know. You know, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And to whatever extent we're, we're just kind of discouraged and moping around and stagnant and just waiting and trying to trying to just keep our lives together until you return or until we die. God, help us to see it. To whatever extent we're consumed with fear and anxiety and worry and God, shine the, the light of Your Word through the, with the, through the lens of Your Holy Spirit into our lives to see it and help us to confess it and see the, this gift of peace that You hold out to us, Christ, by Your wounds. And because You've been presented alive, we have this gift that can transform us, can, can continue to transform us. The resurrected King can continually resurrect us and give life abundant life we need this Lord we pray in Jesus name